You've selected a show from the Podcast Jukebox, a DIY podcast network. Welcome to Disability After Dark, the podcast feed shining a bright light on all things disability. With your host, Andrew Gerza. Hey there, Disability After Dark listeners, Andrew here. I want to tell you all about a really awesome deal that I got from my friends and new sponsors, Adam and Eve, the number one adult toy superstore. They reached out to me and they said, Andrew, we love Disability After Dark. We love your show. We love what you're doing. And we were wondering if you wanted to run some ads for us. And I was like, fuck yes, I do. But what are my awesome listeners going to get? If I run ads for you, what are they going to get out of this? And they came back with a really fantastic deal that I want to share with you right now. I hope you're getting comfy, cozy, and crippled because this deal is pretty great. If you go to AdamEve.com, you can pick out almost any item in the store, almost any one item in the store, for 50% off. That means you can get one dildo, one lube, and one thing of lingerie if you want for 50% off. And then, once you get that one item for half price, they throw in even more free stuff. Let me tell you all about it. Okay, so you got your one item at half price in your bag and you're ready to go, but guess what? This offer also includes 10 free items on top of that that other item so you get one free item for penis havers one free item for vulva havers one free item for couples and then you also get six free movies from the adameve.com website you can get your favorite porn or an educational film i love free movies they're so awesome this is such a great deal and then on top of that you also get free shipping. What could be better? This is such a great offer. So to redeem this great offer, what you're gonna do is you're gonna go to adameve.com, you're gonna go to checkout, and you're gonna type in darkpod. That's D-A-R-K-P-O-D at checkout, and you're gonna get one item, almost anything in the store, at 50% off, and then you're gonna get those 10 free gifts, absolutely free, as part of your offer. This is such a great deal, and this is just for you, Disability After Dark listeners, and I hope you run over to AdamEve.com and take advantage of it right now. This episode of Disability After Dark has been brought to you by Come As You Are. Come As You Are is Canada's only worker-owned co-op sex shop. Trans-owned and operated, Come As You Are carefully reviews and curates their selection of sex toys, books, and DVDs. Now you can get 15% off your next purchase at comeasyouare.com using coupon code AFTERDARK. Hey there, Disability After Dark listeners, Andrew here. 
I want to let you know all about a good friend of mine and somebody who I think you should all get to know. If you are somebody who is looking for a companionship, a friendship, or romance, I want to let you know about my inclusive provider friend, Haley Jade. Haley Jade is a 30-year-old disabled bisexual offering online companionship for friends or romance. They have been published in Vice and HuffPost, and they specialize in working with disabled clients and are disabled themselves. Their online services start at $50 Canadian dollars, and they can be found on Twitter at Sexy Life Coach, Instagram at Sexy Life Coach, and you can book them via their website, Haley Jade, that's H-A-Y-L-E-Y-J-A-D-E dot C-H, to book on their website. Just wanted to bring that to your attention. If you're looking for a fun, sexy, romantic companion who specializes in disabled clients, Haley Jade is the one for you. Book them now. Content warning. The language, content, and discussion found within this episode of Disability After Dark will be explicit. Listener discretion advised. Hello, hello, friends. Welcome to the show, friends. Thank you so much for clicking on another episode of Disability After Dark, the podcast shining a bright light on disability story. I'm, of course, your disabled Dick Smith, Andrew Gerza. Let's get comfy, cozy, and crippled and get this episode started. First things first, of course, I want to give a shout out to some of the people that have helped keep a bright light shining on disability stories and on this show. And those are the awesome people that support the Disability After Dark Patreon who put their money down. So let me find somebody who I'm going to give a shout out to today. Our awkward shout out today goes to a new Patreon who pledged $5 a month. I want to give a shout out to Gabriel Martinez and thank them for pledging $5 a month. Your awkward shout out is this. Your email is gabgabalicious and I want to tell you that you are gabalicious indeed. Thank you so much for pledging $5 a month to keep a light on the show. And by doing so, Gabriella, that means you get the show one day early on Wednesday instead of Thursday, as well as when you go to our special Patreon feed, you will find that it is completely ad-free. So, hope you enjoy that. Thank you so much for your support. If you want to support the show, of course, go to patreon.com slash disabilityafterdark and pledge as little as $1 a month or up to $5 a month or more to support the show. Thank you so much for shining a bright light on this. Now let's get to the show today. On the show today, somebody reached out to me on Instagram a few weeks ago and said, I don't know if I qualify for this. I'm not sure if my story is somebody you want to highlight, but I'd love to come and tell you my story. And I really, really enjoyed speaking to this person today. And it was a different kind of interview and more into kind of the vein of stuff I want to do with the show. Moving, moving not necessarily away from sexuality, but moving into more of a different narrative than the show has gone into before. And so I talked to my friend today, my new friend and guest on the show, Mr. Fox, who tells us about their experience living with, and his experience living with fibromyalgia and what that means for him and why and how he came to be diagnosed with fibro and 
and kind of going through that process, going through the, the anger and grief of your body changing when you don't want it to and not being able to do things and not being able to be as productive as he was before. There was a whole lot to unpack here and I really enjoyed sitting down with him and hearing the story of how he learned to come to terms with his disability. It was really, really impactful and really, really powerful. One of the things that I found particularly impactful in in talking with Mr. Fox was that he also was working as a healthcare professional in this time, as a mental health professional during this time. And so having to figure out how to run his practice and also deal with the fact that his body was changing and he was kind of entering that phase of disability was a really interesting and important conversation to have. And I asked him questions about whether or not he whether or not he uses his lived experience as somebody with fibromyalgia to talk with patients a little bit and we have discussions around that a really really important discussion of somebody trying to manage becoming disabled when they don't necessarily want to be and then kind of how to manage all those things and how to feel about all that and dealing with the anger and the grief and the upset and how your body changes and really digging deep and shining a light on these conversations and it was something that was so listening back to it because I listened to the whole episode just now before recording this it was so so powerful to hear him just talk about his anger and his upset and his relationships to people that were changing as he was figuring out that he was disabled and how much how much grief he was showing and how much anger he was dealing with and how he's transformed all that to be who he is now and it, while, it, while it doesn't change the fact that he feels those things here he is dealing with it it was a really really fun conversation that I was really really happy to have so I'm excited to share that with you now so without further ado here's my interview with Mr. Fox right here on Disability After Dark the podcast shining a bright light on story with me <laughs> Andrew Gerza I fucked up that uh, intro but anyway here's my my discussion with Mr. Fox about his experience with fibromyalgia, right here on Disability After Dark. Mr. Fox, hello. Hello, good morning. So nice to have you on Disability After Dark. How are you today? I'm doing really well, thank you for having me. Anytime. You actually reached out to me a couple of weeks ago on, on my email, and just I'm not sure if I should apply, but here's my story, and I was like, well, you have a great story, so I, I wanted to bring you on. Can you... Introduce yourself to the audience and tell us who you are and tell us kind of why you wanted to come on today. Sure. Um, My name is Mr. Fox. I have been living with fibromyalgia for the last five years. And in addition to that, um, I have been working within the mental health field for the last decade. And when I saw that your podcast was looking for more people to connect with, more people to share insight, perspective, whatever. Um, that was something that I felt if you were open to what I have experienced in me sharing that would be potentially beneficial to others just because right now, especially going through COVID, everyone is experiencing something we cannot control. And that's not something that all of us have fully experienced before it, with the information that can actually help us grow from that beyond just, wow, that was terrible. So yeah. I, I would that because that's something that I've had to deal with a lot with my own fiber and my own disability. Yeah, everybody's going through going through a, a really weird time right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and it can, it's 
people just need to people need friendly voices to kind of guide them through so i'm glad you're here for that um we're not doing a special COVID episode today i decided i want to have you on a full episode because you gave me a lot of different stuff we could talk about so i was like i, I was like i can't i can't craft this into a full quarantine and chill episode i want to do a full episode because sure you had so much stories so can you first tell me all the disabilities you live with and how they impact your day today sure thing um the primary disability that i've been living with uh, just falls under the category of fibromyalgia um it is chronic pain chronic headaches migraines um my physical abilities have been impacted significantly. I have to walk with a cane on many days. Um, so everything from waking up, basically feeling, honestly, a good way to put it is hungover every day for the last five years. Oh, wow. Um, I wake up with a lot of fog. I wake up with a lot of dizziness. Um, if there is a storm outside or I haven't gone to bed on time or anything in my self-care is off, it is harder for me to wake up. It is harder for me to get out of bed. Um, it is not so much a, a motivation and energy thing. It is purely the physical aspect of moving any inch of my body hurts. Um, fibromyalgia is usually categorized as chronic pain and inflammation for no specific clear reason. Um, it is connected to trauma. It has been connected to um not prioritizing mental health and physical health in a way that is positive. Um, and there's a lot of research now showing how the somatic experiences, the physical experiences we go through are often connected to our mental health. Um, so yeah, that has been most of it. Physical pain everywhere in my body, kind of a weird mix between getting your, getting your, body tattooed and getting your skin caught in a zipper it's a really uncomfortable nerve pain oh wow yeah i can imagine that would be very unpleasant for you and that's it's all the time like even even as we're talking right now is all the time um if i don't take care of myself it gets a lot worse if it is storming outside if there is a massive barometric pressure shift some days i will wake up with increased fog or or um it's not so much confusion. The, the best way I can explain it is how it, it's really trouble to focus. If you've been hungover, same concept. It, it's, I have trouble realizing that, Oh wow, I've been sitting here just staring off into space for 45 minutes just because I'm in pain. Um, and so that is a part of it as well. And then throughout the day, it's trying to manage that pain uh, of the nerve pain that I described earlier. Um, if I do too much physically in any way, shape or form, any joints that were involved get inflamed and get, they feel like they weigh about 50 pounds a piece um, oh, especially wow. my arms and my shoulders it's pretty messed up wow and so you 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 know you've only been diagnosed for the last five years Mm-mm. technically no i've only been diagnosed for the last i think it was the last three or four um I, i'm actually extremely privileged uh in talking with all my specialists and doing my own research I think the average amount of time it takes for people to get diagnosed with fibro varies between like three to seven years. Um, the first day I went in to speak with my, I'm not sure if it was a neurologist or rheumatologist, they gave me a sheet of, do these things apply to you for criteria of fibro? And I think I checked off nine out of the 10 things that applied and some in significantly higher ranges than they, than they prompted me to. Um, 
and then just that combined with working with a neurologist or rheumatologist, my general practitioner, a pain specialist, a pain psychiatrist. Uh, I was very lucky to get a diagnosis within, I think, a year and a half to two years. And what were, what was their... Because I hear so many stories from people that come on the show talking about their diagnoses and their experience of, of getting diagnosed, how, how dismissive the doctors were, how, how, how unreliable they were, how they didn't listen. What was your experience of that like? Um, my experience, again, was the opposite of the norm. My experience, again, was very privileged, and I imagine that has to do with the fact that I am a cis white male and I am heterosexual appearing. Um, and so as a result, truthfully, uh, I also, my insurance has been through Kaiser Permanente, which they have a lot of their issues, but some of their people are really great. Um, and, and I think it was just because I was, I, I met the criteria for all the things that people appreciate in terms of implicit bias and privilege. So I was always friendly. I tried to show up on time. I did all the things that made me look professional. I talked about my job as a therapist. I did all those things while consistently trying to go, hey, I, I feel weird for asking this. I, I feel uncomfortable asking this, but is, are you aware that this is a thing? Is this something that we can discuss? And I think because of that, I just got treated really well. And legitimately, I had some, none of, none of the practitioners I worked with were particularly uneducated or unbiased. And I, I was very, very lucky. Um, my PCP has actually changed within the last six months. And that was an extremely uncomfortable situation because for the first time I had to deal with the fact that for the first time in a long time, I had to take the risk of potentially finding someone who would not pay attention to everything I said about my fibro, not pay attention to my chronic pain, not pay attention to um, me being pansexual and just for setting an example because more men need to get tested just for proactivity, um, getting STI tested regularly. Um, and so, yeah, truthfully, my experience was pretty good. My, I think it's my rheumatologist gave me the best explanation of why my pain was happening the way it was, which a lot of people in fibro don't even, a lot of people with fibro don't even always get from their doctor. It's usually just, yeah, we don't know what's wrong with you, but clearly you're in pain. So that's diagnosis. Yeah. Or here's some pills or here's some whatever. Good luck to you. Best luck. Bye. Yeah. Exactly. Um, the way my room, I think. I always mix up my neurologist and my rheumatologist. I really should just have their names like on a post-it somewhere so I can remember which one's which. Um, thankfully, I don't ever tell that to them. And if they're watching this, I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> but the way that was explained to me, especially with the chronic pain, was that with fibromyalgia, with chronic pain, what the, the best information they have at this point is that the natural chemical reactions in our brain that cause us to go into uh, fight, flight, freeze, or fawn mode are, are constantly, they're basically stuck on a high. And as a result, our body never really allow, is able to fully rest as much as it needs. Even when we're asleep, it's still pumping out neurochemicals as though we are in crisis mode and on edge and our adrenaline's higher and all those other chemicals are higher. And as a result, we are, we're stuck in a loop where we're constantly ready to do something even though we need 20 hours of rest sleep and rest and that's the best explanation i've ever gotten I, I fully believe that's just because i had a lot of i've had a lot of really oddly positive experiences which is really not the norm and it's more important to talk about what isn't the norm than my experiences unfortunately 
I mean, it really, it really isn't the norm to get, to get such a, when you said everything went smoothly and you got a diagnosis like fairly quick, I was like, that doesn't, that, I have never heard that in the people that I talk to. Usually the stories I hear are so vastly different. So I'm happy for you that it, that it's, that it went well, but I, I think it's an anomaly. It's extreme. Oh, I'm, I'm, I entirely agree. I've never heard of this happening in any context for pretty much anyone else I've ever heard of. It's, I, I've been very, very lucky with that. And it's one more reason why I talk about how my experience is not the norm and it should be the norm because it's the reason why it should. It definitely should be. It should be the norm and it should be like, I think you should use your white male cisness to be like, hey, this should be happening for everyone. That's what I try to do. I actually had a, um, actually had a phone call with Kaiser Permanent Day just about a month and a half ago because. I did something for some online appointment and they gave me a feedback form. I said, sure, why not? While I'm doing this, you should also know that your mental health facilities are overfull and your physical therapy facilities are great, but also overbooked. So we should talk about that. And they actually called me back and I pointed out, you know, like your doctors are great. The fact that you all communicate is great because you want to do everything in house. You don't have enough staff for the people who are doing the things. And so physical therapy once, once a month doesn't work. Yeah, no, it has to be much. It has to be much more frequent for any, for any kind of uh, baseline thing to change. Yep. Um, I did have a question. I was looking at your form just now. I'm also Jewish, so hello and welcome. Hello. Um, and I was wondering, and this is just a question that I had. I was thinking about it as you were talking. Does your, does you being Jewish play a role in how your disabilities are treated, or how is that? Has that has that affected you at all, culturally? Um, I I think the only comment I have to that uh, is a reference to uh, generalized information that is not necessarily accurate. Um, no, I my religion has not caused any significant strain in terms of my disability beyond the fact that my parents being Jews from New York love to focus on all the negative, love to focus on everything that's stressing them. They love to... As we like to do. Yeah, that's yes, not... Yes. yes. Yeah. And so, so that aspect of every Jewish person who's been close to me since as long as I've had this has been wonderful. They also do a great job at projecting all their own anxieties in every conversation <laughs> we have. That's amazing. That's, that sounds, yep. <laughs> that sounds like, yep, yep. That's not, you're not incorrect about that. 100% the truth. Yep, got it. <laughs> um, you know, my experience of being Jewish and in a wheelchair and being a wheelchair user has been a little bit different. Like I can't go to a lot of, I don't I don't practice say religiously, but I can't go to like the synagogues. A lot of them are not That's accessible. Yeah. Or, you know, I've been, I've had, I've had people who are super, religious in that in that faith want to like want to like pray with me and do Jewish prayers to like stop the disability from happening. I'm like, that's very nice, but that's yeah. not That's not why I'm here. That's not what this is about. Yeah, like nope. I, I will say that and admittedly that probably is because of their own discomfort with just disabilities in general. That feels a lot more pushy. Yeah. Some of I grew up in a, going to a very reformed synagogue. We 
played guitar and our rabbi was named Billy and he had his own business. Um, but it just, the one thing I appreciate about my faith is that it's never really been something that is supposed to be pressured on other people. It's never supposed to be pushed on other people. So I, I don't know if maybe, I don't know, maybe it was just those people and their discomfort or a more conservative or orthodox aspect of Judaism that you have experienced in that regard. I mean, my, my, and again, I, I've only, I, I only really kind of did this in the guy stuff when I was a young boy, not so much anymore. But like, I remember just a lot of Jewish people that I would interact with, they'd see me in my wheelchair and they would get immediately uncomfortable and they wouldn't know how to, they wouldn't know how to talk about that. They wouldn't know how to manage it. They would, they would stop talking to me. And I can remember being six or seven, eight, you know, in synagogues or at Jewish events being like, why does nobody, why is no one talking to me? What's going on? And so I just wondered if your, if your fibro played a role in that for you, but I guess not so much. No. Also, admittedly, I have, my fibro has been affecting me mostly in the last five years and I have not been the most involved with my religious community because of that aspect, just because getting out of the house has been more difficult, getting on video calls or whatever else are more difficult. So it is something that I think part of why I haven't had to interact with it is because due to my disability, I have been less involved in religious activities. Yeah. So I really haven't interacted with people nearly as much. Now coming into your disability, you know, owning the fact you have a disability is, is a journey for all of us and it takes it's it's a it's it's not a sprint no, no it's a it's whatever that saying is it, it takes time yes. so how, how do you how have you felt kind of in the last three to five years coming to terms with the fact that you are a disabled person um i have made the most progress in how i have been feeling on that in the last year and a half due to a lot of self-work and a lot of therapy um do you mind kind of going into that? I totally will. Um, and I will get to that in a second. Uh, a bit more context. My, I spent the first two years basically dealing with my fibro by being in a coma. Not actually in a coma, so that's a huge over-exaggeration. I'm sorry. Um, mostly just heavily medicating to deal with the amount of pain. And most of that time period is a blur. When I, I remember that there are certain people that were involved in my life during that time. I remember them probably interacting with me personally or at my apartment. I'm sure I've probably spent the vast majority of our time staring off into space or asleep or making them uncomfortable because I was in a significant amount of pain and I was not really managing it. I was just sort of experiencing all of it and not doing anything about it. Yeah. Um, from that moved into, I'm working on it and I'm very, very angry about all of it. Um, and that lasted for, at least two years. And that's why I started going to therapy because um, a lot of people who were close to me were pointing out how much my personality had changed, how much I had gotten stuck in depressive episodes more frequently and how I was just an angry, angry person. I, I, I was constantly cranky. I was constantly on edge. I didn't want to accept any of my limitations. And at the time, for the last, until this past March, I worked as an in-home therapist, specifically with people dealing with mental health issues, with people on the spectrum, with people who are at risk of the child being removed from the home due to either the kids' behaviors or other family systemic issues. So I was doing a lot of driving 
and I was doing a lot of physical activity because our sessions were two and a half hours long and, you know, get them outside, they talk more, things like that. But realistically, every once in a while, I would have to deal with a violent client and I would be in so much pain afterwards. And I would be, I would be out of work for three or four weeks at a time because I didn't want to admit that the work I was doing was too much, but I also couldn't get my life in order to, to do the things I needed to do to make my body better. I think that's a really important and salient point you said there because like we there's so much of and I think it's really I'm gonna I'm gonna just kind of repeat it because I think it's so valuable so much of like having to do the thing but not wanting to admit that you're the thing you're doing is causing you like discomfort but not having the verbiage or the words to say I don't fucking like this this hurts Mm-hmm. Or not, or being, or being, or what's worse is being able to say that, but not wanting to say the words. Because when you say the words, you then, in our in our society, when you in, when you say I'm disabled, a lot of people assume that's a defeat. Mm-hmm. You've let you've given up. Mm-hmm. When really it's you just saying I need some fucking support for a minute. Yep. And um, being me, both in terms of my career, in terms of my childhood, and being male my experiences of my emotions for many years was I compartmentalize and I don't deal with it or it was I handle everyone else's weight and I handle the way of the world for everyone else and I take care of everyone else and when my problems get too big for me to no longer ignore them I explode and then I disappear for a while and then I just repeat that process all over again because a lot of us especially the men have been taught that our emotions are okay as long as we avoid them or we're angry about them yeah yeah, but as long as they come out in a big volcano of emotion, then exactly, <laughs> then that's right. Um, and I can imagine, like, in your form, you were telling me you kind of like laid out how much stuff you did prior to the disability and how much uh, what you were doing before it all kind of happened to you. Can you can you lay that out for us? Um, prior to my form, or prior to 2015, I was working a lot more than I have for the last five years, my hours decreased very, very significantly. Um, I was often working well above 60 hours a week. Um, I did a lot of travel. I was an over-functioner. I I was constantly taking care of everyone around me. Whenever there was something going on, I was usually the host. I was usually the organizer. I'm a people pleaser. I'm a service person, whatever terms you want to use. I'm very much... I like to be involved. I I like to help take care of people. And so I was constantly moving and I was constantly doing, and I I never allowed myself to consider that, you know, I should be a little more realistic with my limits. I should pay a little more consideration to how my body is responding to these things. Um, Was there anything in specific that you were asking about from that? Just in terms of like, you know, you, you mentioned in the form that you were doing, like you were, you were like a you were like a competitive fencer. You were doing yep. all this stuff. You were doing all of this like athletic stuff, and I'm wondering, like, um, all through high school and into college, I was a, a competitive fencer. I did a lot of travel for that, and actually, my sister, uh, who is started younger than me and is about five years behind me in terms of age, is still fencing and when she can, um, do her own physical challenges coincidentally. Um, yeah, now that I think about it, she has just as many somatic issues as I do. Um, but that's a different thing. Um, but yeah, no, I, I, I was a far more active person. Uh, 
my wife and I would drive up to Longwood Gardens in Pennsylvania every month and we probably walked four or five miles during that single day just walking around the gardens and that was our that that was our calm time like that that was our laid back time that was us escaping and walking slowly for around gardens and plants all day and that was still at least three miles worth of hiking um, wow which I'm sure your fiber body can do now so much i mean i couldn't do it then either i just kind of (coughs) i i forced it and then i spent a week asleep and avoiding all my (laughs) responsibilities and not really being a human being and it wasn't something that i wanted to accept that i cannot do all these things and still do all these things it just doesn't it wasn't sustainable and i didn't want to accept it at all um i was very much and i have always been or until a lot of my work, I was very much an over-functioner and I still am to some degree. So I was constantly, I, I did all of my actual career work. I did a lot of traveling. I did a lot of educating others. I did a lot of organizing events. I literally, I, I, at one point, I was proud of the fact that I had five different jobs and 12 different calendars. I, I was so wow. proud of that. I was, and to some degree, all of that was also me avoiding a bunch of the other stuff I had gone through that probably also contributed to me getting fibro. Um, but yeah, no, I was very much someone who I did not consider my own limits. I took care of everyone around me and I just kept going. And when I crashed and everyone had to take care of me, I never really paid attention to how much effort and labor people had to put in because I allowed myself to crash. So do you... I, I, I sense in you saying that, do you feel a lot of blame around the fact that you didn't, you didn't initially, like, did you get angry at yourself for not mm-hmm. just saying, this is what I have, this is happening? Yep. Um, and, and of course, in, in getting angry with myself, I would either lash out or just try not to think about it, which of course would make it worse. Um, it, it really was something that at first I didn't even want to acknowledge at all that, you know, it, it, it was a very easy way for as many providers have pointed out is a very easy way to, for me to only focus on me and nothing else. So for the first, however long, when I was just trying to avoid the fact that my life had changed so much, I paid no attention to what anyone was doing around me. And I paid no attention to how much everyone was putting in and how much it cost everybody. Um, and then when I finally started learning to live with this and manage it, even just the slightest bit after two plus years, I, I still really didn't want to accept any of my limits and I didn't want to accept that I had done that for two years and I didn't want to accept that I was still doing it. And I didn't want to accept that there was still a million things that I was trying to fit in and trying to force that I couldn't do. And I probably had to accept a lot more than I wanted to. So yeah, I totally avoided it and I was angry with myself and that of course made me avoid it more. That sounds like a real fun cycle. You were in there for a while. Yeah, it really sucked. Um, from what I have heard, because I fully admit that I do not remember most of it, which doesn't mean it didn't happen. Um, I was a real ass to a lot of people who were really close to me. And truthfully, one of the best things that could have happened for me was one of the people who were really close to me was getting upset because we were having dinner together in a public restaurant. And I was venting about some of the stuff that I had been going through and they tried to just give me some support. And because I was so angry with myself, I didn't want any support and I didn't want to any, I just wanted to vent and complain and 
I didn't want to think about any of it. I didn't want to take any responsibility at that, at that point. And they didn't try and fix it. They didn't try and flip it back on me. But what they said was still a lot more than I was willing to accept that I couldn't do at that time. And I yelled at them a bunch. And their response at, to that was, you know what? Yeah, this is now, th this is something that we can't do anymore. If I pay for it, will you go to therapy? Wow. And I owe that person a ton, both financially and just in gratitude. I don't know if I can ever pay back because truthfully that was, that, that was so long overdue. Um, I, I should have, I, I did try getting into therapy years prior, much like many people and unlike the rest of my medical experiences, um, that one did not go well. Um, and it was hard to find a provider. And then when I found someone, they were not fun to work with. And so I didn't work with them after the two sessions. And then I just avoided it for a while. So it's, it, it's definitely something that made a huge difference. And I'm glad that I, I'm sad that I forced it by yelling at someone that I really care about. I, I'm ever grateful and continually trying to thank them as much as I can for putting up with me through all of that. And then going, Hey, let me pay for your therapy because I'm not dealing with this anymore. Well, I know they're going to listen to this show, I'm sure. So <laughs> they can hear you thank them forever in eternity because it'll be on a recording. Very, very, very much so. Thank you so much. Oh, that's so nice. Yeah. Um, can you tell me kind of what it was like going into therapy, knowing that you had all these this new... Were you diagnosed when you went into therapy? Uh, so, yeah, I'd been diagnosed for at least a year or two by that point. And was so okay. So you you mentioned a minute ago that you had gone to there before, it didn't work out. Was this a new like? Did you feel? Did you feel a new sense of like, okay, I'm gonna give this a shot now. I gotta try. It was definitely a little bit of it. Part of it was also the fact that I had a, and this just comes from me talking with people and talking with other people that also are in the mental health field. Um, part of my hesitation similarly to how doctors make the worst patients, therapists make the worst mental health clients. Um, and so it was something that legitimately I didn't really want to do because of some of the negative experiences I had had prior, but it was also something that I, I knew I needed to find someone who understood that they were providing therapy to a therapist because if they weren't really calling me on my stuff, they weren't really involved. Then I was, I was, I have all the right tools to make all the wrong decisions. Yeah, and you know all the lingo, and you know you know how to you know how to you know how to evade somebody the right way if you wanted yes. to, because you you yes. do that for a living. So yeah, and especially when we're in, when we are in our own therapy, we all do that a little bit just because those things are hard to deal with, and that's why we're in therapy. Yeah, it, it was the the motivation and sense of all right, this is going to be good, and I'm going to try this again came as a result of me connecting with my therapist and actually starting to do the work and feeling that this was working out well. Um, truthfully, uh, until that process happened, until I had some reassurance of, oh no, this is actually going to work. I wasn't excited about it at all. I was doing it because I knew I had to, because I was finally taking a little bit of responsibility for all the labor that everyone around me was doing. And you didn't want to lose that friend that was like, I care about you. So exactly. I didn't want to keep hurting them. So I, once the therapy started, once I actually felt connected with my therapist and saw that they were someone who could hold me accountable while still connect with me, that's when I started feeling motivated. That's great. And so what kind of things did you, like what kind of stuff have you talked about in therapy? If you can share some that 
in terms of your disability journey? What kind of stuff has been brought up for you in a, in a therapy session around fibro and around your experience? Um, there has, for a while, there was a good bit of just sort of data collection. The therapist that I work with now had not worked with people who, are, who experience fibro as I do. So some of it was just, you know, me venting and telling him what I go through and him just asking me questions to collect all the data he needed. Um, after that, we started talking a lot more about aspects of grief and loss and mourning the life that I expected to have and accepting the life I have now, which I'm not even 35 and a busy weekend for me is going for a walk in the park, you know, like an 85 year old man. And so like, it's just that accepting that and being able to be okay with that limit and set those boundaries for myself and a lot of work around anger and a lot of work around my own self identity because all of those were in some state of either on fire or denial because I didn't want to deal with any of it. Like that thing you said about, you know, mourning with the life you once had, I feel it the same way in that like I've been, I've had cerebral palsy from day one, but as my disability changes and morphs and as I get older and my bones change and my body structure changes a bit and all these things that no one tells you when you're, when you're a kid with, with, yeah. with, no one tells you this you just have to yeah and so i i would love to understand like what what has that mourning process been like for you at first it was something that i avoided both outside of therapy and in therapy um I, i was my initial therapy sessions were a lot of me talking about everything that wasn't my disability um and it took it took some level of trusting my therapist and it took some level of my therapist pointing out, okay, you keep saying these things, but we're not connecting how they relate to your disability. We're not relating how they connect to your day, day-to-day life or things like that. And I didn't really want to deal with it for a while. I don't think we really started talking about it in full until probably three or three months of working together just because I didn't feel safe doing that work. I was still getting to know him and it just, I wasn't in the place to accept it yet. So it was a lot of, I spent a lot of time rambling about everything except for the one sentence he would be asking for. And that sentence was? I feel horrible today and I'm tired and I thought I did everything right, but clearly I didn't. And it might be the weather and it makes me feel like a crazy person. And I hate that I can't walk around my apartment without needing to stop because, oh, I got dizzy and my knees are killing me and I don't think I can move my arm to balance myself against the wall. And this is all ridiculous and stupid and I don't like it. And I'm upset for all the things that this has done to the people around me and all of this, all the list of everything I've been waiting for years. You know what? I love that you, you kind of like did that the whole big kind of wave there because that stuff that so many disabled people, myself included, have inside ourselves that we never share. It's sitting there at the surface all the time. We we never have a chance to share it. And I have done therapy. I'm not in there right now, but I was at at a point. And I remember having to go to my therapist and then she was not disabled in any way. And I'd have to spend... I spent about two months just teaching her what disability was and what my disability was. And I remember after two months being like, you're super nice. I really like coming here, but I also would like to get past showing you and just start getting into the work of what I got to do. That never happened. So did you feel frustrated having to, did he have, first of all, did your therapist have any, 
have any experience working with disabled people at that point? Not, if he had, it's not something he shared with me. Um, so did you feel a sense of having to, like, did you have to walk him through all that? Which I know is data collection, but also can be really frustrating. I hadn't thought about that. Um, I did have to walk him through that. And legitimately still there are plenty of days, even currently, where he will pause the conversation and go, okay, I get the sense that there's probably stuff that you're experiencing that I am not able to see through this telehealth call. Can you update me on what your body is feeling? Can you update me on what you think is going on for yourself right now? Can you update me on how you're physically feeling? Um, and, and so I think because of the fact that I am a therapist, or I was a therapist and I now work as a coach, because I've had all that experience, it was easier for me to accept that, you know, really for, for the first while, he's just going to be trying to make sure he has the full picture, which I really appreciated. Um, but also it just, he did a really good job of allowing it to occur relatively organically. And he avoided a lot of the pitfalls that can come in mental health when a provider is not educated or experienced with a certain disability or lifestyle or mindset or relationship style, whatever. Um, he did a really good job not making me feel like it was my job to educate him while still bringing up those conversations in a way that actually felt therapeutic to me. That's great. But and that made a big difference. That's fantastic because most of my therapeutic sessions have been me literally walking through a not with a non-disabled, completely able-bodied therapist who wants to help and is very curious and wants to learn, but you have to spend so much time teaching them. You're like, what am I paying for again? Yep. Why am I here? What's what? And um, I think me avoiding it probably made that easier for him because that way, since I was already not talking about it too much and he, he was able to bring it up in ways that were relevant to whatever I was venting about. And that allowed it to, I would still usually have to inform him on some things, but more often than not, it was just me going, oh yeah, you're right. That does connect to this thing. And it feels like this. Thanks for pointing that out. And it felt a lot more therapeutic than just, I'm going to lecture about my experience. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. That's fantastic. Good. Um, I'm happy to hear that because it doesn't happen all the time. It really doesn't. I'm fully worth I am very privileged in the providers I've worked with. Like you you oddly hit the jackpot of people that want to really like have, you really did. I, I don't uh, my guess and I have no idea how Kaiser fits into that because Kaiser is an unrelated thing, at least within my therapist because I work in the mental health field, because I got referrals from other mental health providers, the recommendations on, oh, this therapist may actually really connect with your personality made a big difference. Truthfully, this therapist I'm working with now was a recommendation of another therapist who I worked with for exactly one month because at the end of that one month, the therapist said, you have a lot of anger and I don't think I'm the right therapist for you. And so this is going to be our last session, regardless of what you say. But I think you should give this person a call because I, I think this therapist is much more in terms of your own needs, in terms of your financial budget. This person is going to be a lot more accessible and this person is probably better suited for type of work that you need to do. And I was very angry with them and did not want to call that person. And I'm very <laughs> grateful that I did because that person has been working with me consistently nonstop and has been fantastic. And yeah. Like, it's very lucky. Very it sounds lucky. like you 
just to move into what you've been saying, you've, you mentioned a lot in this last 45 minutes of us talking that you had a lot of anger, but in talking to you, you seem so calm and you seem so relaxed and you, I don't get this. Like, it sounds like you've... <laughs> both in terms of before my disability and after I had a lot of practice. I've, I've been people's therapist since I was seven years old. So I've had a lot of practice not showing my own stuff until I either explode at people or break down. Um, and in the last few years between therapy and my job changing and me getting to coaching and working from home instead of doing all the travel and dealing with violent clients, I am a lot less angry because my pain is a lot lower because my lifestyle, while still the lifestyle of an 80 year old man, is one that is without, I have a lot less denial, I have a lot less resentment, I have a lot less hurt because I've been doing the work, because I've been going to therapy, because I've been accepting my limits and saying, all right, this really sucks and I'm pissed that I can't do this. But it's really nice that I haven't been asleep in pain for a week because I did that thing according to my limits instead of how I wanted to. So my anger these days is a lot lower than it has been in five years. But yes, I have a lot of practice hiding it. I'm really, I'm really happy to hear that because like the person that I'm sitting with right now, based on what you've just described to me, I don't sense that. I sense somebody who, and I'm sure you have days where you're pissed off and I'm not saying, but I, but I get the sense that you're coming to this, this weird plateau of acceptance and like not comfort with it, but you're like, okay, this is what it is. And like, that's what I feel from talking with you. Um, thank you. I really, really appreciate you pointing that out. Uh, I, I do honestly, I need to thank the Marbach family because at the beginning of 2020, they bought me my first ever Audible uh, membership. Isn't it great? It is. And as someone who deals with headaches every day and as someone who my, my eyes are sore, like I, even when I wake up, even when they've been resting for nine hours because I need that nine hours to be functional, my eyes are always tired. I haven't read books in years because this reading is physically exhausting for me. And because of having an accessible way to access literature through Audible, I've actually read more books in the, or listened to more books in the last nine months than I have probably read in the last 12 years combined. Wow. What kind of stuff do you listen to? I mean, I'm a mental health nerd, so I listen to a lot of Brene Brown. Um, I'm right, yeah. Anti-racism work, so I, I just finished um, How to Be an Anti-Racist by Eva Max Kendi, and being a white person, I started with the book written by a white person, White Fragility, which of course had its own complications there. But I, I do a lot of, mo- most of my reading or audiobooks are mental health focused on my wish list is a combination of toxic masculinity and mental health and self-compassion and mindfulness and meditation. And uh, I just finished listening to an excerpt from Don't Bite the Hook by Pema Chodron about um, how we interact with anger and some literature that was, uh, some teachings that were put together by uh, a practitioner I think it was 800 BC, 880. I'm not sure which 800 it was, but it was so long ago. And it was entirely talking about the same stuff we're still still dealing with today about how when we're angry, more often than not, we're likely to make ourselves more angry. When we're depressed, more like, we're more likely to make ourselves more depressed. Yeah. Um, and it's it's been really interesting to hear these 
concepts on emotion and self-compassion and understanding that are centuries old and still entirely apply. Yeah. And, and we still haven't, and it seems like with, the, with each generation, we forget it and they have to do it. We have to literally rewrite the wheel and start again. Yep. yep. Um, I had a question about your sex life and mm-hmm. the fibro. How has your disabilities affected your sex life, your arousal, your libido? Your libido? Um, that has been a very, very difficult process for me. Um, it required me accepting limits that I didn't want to accept even existed. Um, uh, masturbation, sexual activity has been one of my core self-care coping tools I've had since I was a teenager. And that's also something I discussed in therapy. Um, but as a result, with my body being significantly less mobile, being significantly more likely to be exhausted from a shorter thing, from spending two years basically asleep and then learning to live with fibro for the last three, where I don't do a lot of consistent exercise outside of like walking in a pool or going for a short walk, there were a lot of limits that I had to accept that I didn't want to even acknowledge. And so for a, for, for a significant amount of time, especially when this first started, my sex life and my libido entirely tanked, not because I wasn't uh, attracted to my wife, not because I wasn't interested in sex, but because I was so angry with, I was so resentful with my own body for how much I had to accept that I couldn't do, for how much I wanted to do and I couldn't do, that Yes, physically, I was in no condition to do anything anyways. I was basically a couch potato um, in, in all senses of the word. And I had no stamina or energy or anything. And I, I was in no shape to do that, but I was so angry about it that I wasn't going to do anything anyways because my brain was entirely just focused on that. Um, and that also has taken a good bit of meditation, mindfulness, uh, um, loving kindness meditations and a lot of therapy for me to be a little more acceptance, accepting of my own limitations and my own body. Um, I also will fully admit that when this really started happening, um, when, when I really started talking more with my doctors about all of my symptoms and all the ways I was impacting my life that I had been avoiding previously, the topic of Viagra came up purely because, uh, the topic of Viagra came up purely because of the fact that when my wife was interested in being physical, being intimate, I wanted to be able to do that regardless of how many medications I had taken and regardless how dead I was feeling and regardless of how useless my body was. And before that even happened, or before my doctor was willing to give me the prescription, he had, again, this is when I had a PCP who he was always really great, always talked to me a lot, never made me feel handled. Um, he had a very frank conversation with me of, okay, well, Long-term use will have these impacts. Short-term use will have these impacts. Remember that there are other non-medicated ways that you can try to improve your body's natural reactions to allow for a more consistent uh, stamina and physical erection. Um, And it really was a talk of this is your reality. And if you want to try these pills, you can, but you should also be aware of these things. And it was, it's one of those things that I, I went into it feeling 
very anxious and uncomfortable and of course and legitimately the only reason it went well was because i was very privileged and had someone who talked about it very pragmatically and very realistically and it wasn't a focus on you shouldn't be doing these things because of your body it was we all want to do these things we all physical intimacy is a base need for all of us in some way shape or form you being able to accept that that your intimacy needs aren't getting met because of your disability is a great thing. So if you want to try this thing, sure, let's try it. But let's talk about all the things first. And it went really well. And now do you feel like, because I can imagine that you would, that, you know, that not, that if taking a walk is exerting for you, trying to make yourself orgasm would probably also be super exerting and super yes. hard and really like I, I probably wouldn't want to get off either if it would if all that energy would be exerted and then I have to sleep for a week because I wanted to jerk off once. So like, did you did you have to? How did how did you kind of bring that back into your life? So I started slowly. Um, it, it was very much something that it required a lot of communication at first, so that way all involved were on the same page and this is what this experience looks like and let's figure out how to better manage that because I'm the only one physically physically experiencing this pain so I can't really just expect my wife to know how to immediately change all the things to do all the stuff right or do all the stuff in ways that is sustainable or realistic so there was a lot of those talks um, and then it was some amount of trial and error and a lot of patience also just my own experiences with sex in general, um, both as a therapist and not, orgasms are not always a need for me. Um, yep. I've, for, for a very long time, I've identified as someone who can feel fulfilled sexually without orgasm. Um, and so because of that, honestly, I imagine I had less internal pressure, less internal frustration than that wasn't happening. Um, and that honestly made it probably easier for me Aside from that, it was also just accepting that, you know, there are going to be days that no matter how much I want this thing to happen mentally, my body's not going to be up for it. And I can either be upset about it and avoid it, or I can be upset about it and not do anything, but just vent about it. Or I can talk with my partner and see what she is open to and see what we can come to in terms of what might work. And sometimes that literally just means physical touch and coupling and kissing and still help a lot better than me being angry with myself. <laughs> yeah. I mean, sometimes that feels like, I, and I can totally relate to that because a lot of the times I can't come either in when I'm with a, when I'm with my, I work primarily with, with sex workers. My, my, when I'm with my primary worker, we're having the best time, but sometimes I can't come and it's like, okay, well, it doesn't mean you can't enjoy yourself. It doesn't mean you can't enjoy this moment with this person. What you really want is connection. You're getting that either way. So why are you so worried about having this come shot moment when you could just be enjoying yourself so like i understand that in the sense of like having to let that go and you know mm -hmm. we talked earlier about grief and loss there was there was for me a sense of like oh i've lost this ability to have these amazing orgasms and now it's like okay yeah but look at all the other the other great things you can cultivate in, in the bedroom if you just relax if you are willing to accept where you are at instead of focusing on what you have and you don't so true so true um i wanted to ask you though you 
seem really comfortable with the word disability, which I which I think is great. And like you <laughs> see, practice. <laughs> yeah, tell me a little bit about kind of kind of the the journey of you getting to a place where like the word disability was something you use so freely. Um, two major aspects of that. The first one was I possibly just because of my involvement with mental health in general, possibly just because of the unique places and ways I meet people. I, I know a lot of people who have chronic pain and chronic disabilities and chronic mental health issues that impact their daily lives significantly, even before I had fibro. Um, so to some degree, I had a lot of really supportive people who already used some of that terminology. Um, I, I, social, I hung out with an entire household that identified as a crip home, as a cripple home, because literally between their physical health issues or their mental health issues, all residents of the house, including the pets, had something that would be classified as a disability. <laughs> mm. um, and so that legitimately, I, I had a lot of support going into that. That was really helpful. Uh, just because people already using those words around me, it felt more empowering. It felt more normal for me to say that, you know what? I don't like it, and I am aware that there are certain people who who have disabilities that are far, far more uh, intense than mine and far more impactful than mine. But this is still, by definition, had a very significant impact on every aspect of my day-to-day -day life, and it has had a physical disabling effect on my ability to move, on my ability to communicate. If I am too tired, the, the aspect of physically forming words and saying things is exhausting. So, yeah, by by that count, uh, I have that classification. And then moreover, I think it was two years ago, um, some friends of ours invited us to a all day pub crawl. And I mean, it was St. Patty's Day, it was a thing. And I was really excited to do this thing, except for the fact that I could not physically stand that long. And at some point, my body would stop working and the amount of walking that was involved would become significantly a hindering factor. Yeah. Um, so I bit the bullet, so to speak, and bought my first cane. Um, oh, wow. That's awesome. Because you wanted to go get waste with your friends. You yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it, it was this thing of I can either go to one bar and maybe make it to a second and then go back to the house by myself and feel miserable for the rest of the day or I can force everyone else to completely change how they plan on doing things by finding bars that have places for us to sit, which on St. Patty's Day is going to be really hard. Impossible. Um, yeah. Or I can just deal with this thing that, I mean, I had known for a while I probably needed one. Uh, I, I have a really big, tall, full-length walking stick, hiking stick, whatever you want to call it. I mean, that I got from our local rent fair that I used for that and for outdoor stuff, but I had never formally gotten a cane. Um, when when the term fibro first came up, I, I flat out admitted the only people I know with fibro are men under the age of 50 and they all need to walk with a cane and I refuse to be that person. It's hard to refuse to be something when you don't have control over it. Yep, yep. Because um, so, if I had the choice sometimes, I'd refuse to be a wheelchair user. I refuse to need help. I, get, I totally get that. And I think as men too, and as people yep. who are, are male identified, there's this huge sense of like, pride that mm -hmm. comes with doing shit yourself and Absolutely. being whatever the fuck independence is supposed to mean so i get it 
Yep. 100%. Yep. I also definitely grew up in a household where whenever I would ask for anything, the answer is always, you got legs, go do it yourself. Oh, no. Yeah. So literally <laughs> having to explain to my parents, well, you see, some days my legs just don't do what they're supposed to. It's kind of like, imagine your entire leg and then your entire other leg are both really, really asleep but you're also kind of drunk and can't walk straight anyways. Now do that every day. Oh God. Yeah. It just doesn't work. And so of course being my first cane, I, I, I insisted that, you know, if I'm going to have to use this thing, I want it to not be something that is going to make people further. Die it's associate. Yeah. Associate. So I bought, I bought it off Amazon. Honestly, it is a dark wooden cane with a, a spiral shape going down the shaft and a big ass metal handle on top. That is a ball. So literally not only did I have this thing, but I looked insanely badass and intimidating. Oh yeah. You're the baller. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> because I was so insecure about needing it that I had to compensate. That's I love that story. I love that story so much. That's awesome. And thank you so much for sharing that. That's just great. Um, Led me to using the term disability. I think that's such a great, it's one of my favorite, how I came to use the term disability stories over. Uh, uh, I wanted to ask you quickly, how does the, how does the experience of being disabled and doing all the stuff, doing all the self work to accept this part of yourself, how does that impact the work you do as a coach? Um, the, now that I'm doing the work, it is allowing me to be more supportive of my clients that I'm working with or the clients I'm working with now that I'm doing this work is especially, honestly, telehealth has been surprisingly helpful because especially if I have a client who is messaging their information, I have that opportunity to look at what I'm sending before I send it back. It gives me an extra chance to check things. But truthfully, the especially the self-compassion work and the mindfulness work and the work around privilege um all of those have allowed me to be more present and be more compassionate and better model the things that i'm already talking about to the clients i work with um, does it help you if a client comes in and says i have a disability and do you feel like you'll have an opportunity to say to them hey guess what so do i mm-hmm. um most of the clients that i work with especially over the last few years tend to be more on the intense or severe in terms of how much whatever they're experiencing or their disability affects the daily living. So it's definitely something that I, I do quite a bit of. Um, and, and truthfully, it's something that I've been able to ex- help uh, in my work as a parent coach. I'm able to better explain to the parents, obviously, your kid does not have physical pain like I do. Not at all saying that. But I can say that because of my physical pain, I know what it is like to wake up every day being angry about something you cannot control and being angry with your own brain and being angry with your own body. And because your kids are so dysregulated, because they are so unable to manage their own and their mental health situation is, is as it is, you as parents need to be able to meet them where you are, where they are. You as parents need to be able to be aware of the challenges, the stimuli, the overwhelm that they're not able to communicate in a calm, collected, playful way. Uh, so really having that awareness and being able to communicate that is this is something that all people experience makes a big difference. I think that's really valuable because I think so many parents with 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 children who are experiencing mental health stuff or physical disabilities and mental health stuff, there's again this curative. They come to people for like a curative. Mm-hmm. You just want to fix it and make it better. It yeah, it does. And so to to have you as the practitioner say like. 
hey, guess what? This is the reality and I live with it too. And so I think getting that also helps the parents kind of switch off that ableist mindset maybe be like, oh, I have to pay attention more to this. It's also just something that within my own work experiences and within the mental health field is slowly starting to shift. Um, in my master's program, it was always, you, you keep your physical, you keep your emotional distance, you have your boundaries. You as a therapist should not have anything that they need to be aware of. Don't share your personal stories, whatever. And more and more, we're starting to see more mental health practitioners starting to slowly use lived experience because it helps us connect with the clients we work with. It's not about, we, we can still use that lived experience and connect with our clients without being unprofessional. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think the, I have some friends who also work in the mental health field and who do counseling and things like that. And they are also disabled and having conversations with other disabled people about, you know, clients about their disabilities really opens the door for real conversation to get uh-huh. the actual work done. So I think that's really great. Does. Yeah. Yeah. And I fully support that. This has, I had so much fun sitting with you. I could sit and talk with you for another two hours. It was, there's, Hey, I'm totally happy to talk with you off of this as well as more on this in the future if you ever want. This is I would love to. We I would love to connect with you definitely off this because you seem like a really fun Thank you. person. Yes, you know, <laughs> especially considering that you were angry for so long. You you've done so oh, much I work. Oh, I still have and, plenty of my own anger that I need to deal with. That's I, I continue to go to therapy. Everyone should. Uh, therapy's great. Um. Mm-hmm. So because the tagline of this show is shining a bright light on disability story. What is one thing you'd want to leave listeners with today to shine a light on about your experience, about disability, about anything we talked about today? Um, when it comes to shining light on disabilities, the one thing that I can really stress is we are the, we are our own experts in our own disability. No, no medical practitioner, no mental health provider knows more about our experiences than we do. And at the same point, that also means that when we are not willing to accept our limits, sometimes other providers or other people or other support support people are the ones who are going to be able to point out, hey, you know all this stuff. You are the expert in doing this. You're also getting in your own way by not being willing to accept these limits, by not being willing to accept how this is impacting you. Yeah, I would flip that around too and say, you know what, it's okay if you're not an expert. It's okay if you don't know. Mm-hmm. It's okay if you need Absolutely. that support. It's okay if, like, because I think the trouble with disability politic is that everybody says, oh, we want you to come in and talk about your, they say to me all the time, we want you to come in and talk about your disability expertise. And my first thing as a speaker is to, to go in front of that audience and be like, hi, my name is Andrew Gerza. I'm not an expert. <laughs> like, yeah, and I'm, yeah, no, that's actually absolutely true. Um, I, I'm clearly not an expert, even in my own, as I am still having days that, you know, my body just goes sideways and there's nothing I could have done about it, or there was, and I wasn't able to see it until afterwards. Or there was, and I chose to ignore it because I wanted to do the thing. Yeah, I get exactly, it. Exactly. Um, me saying we are the experts of ourselves is more of saying, don't doubt yourself. Yeah. Um, yeah. We, we may not know what we're dealing with, and that's all the more reason to educate and do the work and talk to people, but yeah meet yourself where you are is really the one thing that comes down to because that's why I have so why I had and still have so much anger. I didn't want to accept where I was at. I think, Oh my God, there's so much. <laughs> like, do we, yeah, I, do I, we I, have I, five more hours? No, because, I'm when you are. 
I mean, I think I definitely want to, I want to talk with you off the air and just chat as people. Cause like, Oh, so many things you brought up here for me that are like, wow. Like I also do a lot of tweets and stuff on Instagram. Like I'm sure you've seen. So I'm, oh, I follow you there too. I'm pretty sure you've given me like at least a good couple days worth of tweet ideas. To, I am more than happy to help put out there. So no, but this has been so fun. Uh, Fox, how do we, I want people to be able to follow your work and follow you and contact you and talk about this stuff. How do they do that? Thank you. Um, I am on Facebook, Instagram. I technically have a Twitter account, but it's usually just things copied from Facebook and Instagram. And I do have my own website. All of it is comfoxcoaching.com, C-A-L-M-F-O-X coaching.com. Um, and links to that, links to all my social media are on that website, but also Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, comfoxcoaching.com. And I'll make sure that's... .com, just for social media pages. I'll make sure that's in the show notes for this episode. Um... This was super great. I had so much fun. And let's. Uh, this was a really great conversation. Thank you. Anytime. Let's connect off the air because it was definitely so fun. All right. This has been an episode. I don't know what it's going to be yet, but you're listening to it now. This has been an episode with Mr. Fox on Disability After Dark. Uh, okay. Bye. Bye. All right, friends. This has been another episode of Disability After Dark, the podcast shining a bright light on disability stories. I'm, of course, your host, Andrew Gerza, your number one queer cripple, and your disabled Dick Smith. If you want to follow my work, you can head over to www.andrewgerza.com or follow me on all social media at It's Andrew Gerza. If you want to follow the podcast, you can follow us on Twitter at DisAftDarkPod. If you want to be a guest on the show, you can email us at disabilityafterdark at gmail.com. We'd love to have you as a guest so you can shine a bright light on your disability story. If you want to support the show and get the show one day early along with ad-free versions of the show and a cool shout-out, you can head over to patreon.com slash disabilityafterdark. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast Shining a Bright Light on Disability Story. We'll see you next time. Bye! Copyright Notice Disability After Dark was presented, created, and produced by Andrew Gerza and Crippled Content Creations. Music was by Music by Space Robot Scientists. Any and all materials, including graphics, audio recordings, and music recordings, are property of the owner and cannot be used or distributed without express permission. Copyright Notice 2020